Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we have already prayed with the psalmist that you would open our lips, that we might praise your name. We also pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonders from your word. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, amen. So, this morning at 2 a.m., daylight savings time ended. And how many of you enjoyed the extra hour this morning? Yes. Parents of young children, did you enjoy the extra hour? Uh, Perhaps parents of teenagers as well, right? Um, We think when they get older that uh, it's easier to get them out of bed, but sometimes it's actually harder. Um, So last night before we went to bed, we turned our clocks back one hour. Of course, our computers, our smartphones changed automatically, but at least in our house, we still have a few of those old-fashioned clocks, you know, the ones with the hands and the Roman numerals, and we had to turn those ones back. And I don't know how you feel, but there's something empowering about turning back a clock one hour, isn't there? I mean, usually we're scrambling around, we feel like we're at the mercy of time, but it's nice just for a moment just for a second, to have the illusion that we control time. You say 10.15, I say (laughs) 9.15. Of course, we can tinker with clocks all we want to, but we remain at the mercy of the time that God has allotted to us. To be human is to live within time, with both its opportunities and its limitations. That's why the psalmist prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then Paul probably had this passage in mind when at the end of Ephesians he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? The days are evil. And I think there's an apocalyptic urgency to these words that runs counter to the mantra of the great city of Babylon, peace and safety. And we can ask ourselves this morning, how are our days evil? I don't know if you've heard the news, but in two days... America decides. Many feel that the campaign we have witnessed has been a dirty, unpleasant business, an embarrassment to government by the people, of the people, for the people. Uh, Last week, a correspondent for the BBC, Nick Bryant, wrote an insightful article about what he calls the low road to the White House. And in it, he describes our current presidential election in what I thought were rather Pauline terms. He says, it has been unlovely and unedifying. Since I have kids who are growing up fast, I find myself thinking and praying more and more about this deeply confused society in which we live. And like many of you, I'm troubled by the scale of 
turning away from the truth. By the state of the church in this country where many are giving ground to the dominant culture, where God's Spirit, who is above all things else holy, is quenched as Christians succumb to the spirit of the age. We live in a culture obsessed with comfort, ease, and tolerance, and the rough edges of the cross are being sanded down, lest anyone get a splinter. And these days, if we do take up our crosses, we find that too often they're made of balsa wood, lightweight. Yes, I have faith that Christ will build his church, but he's given us a heavy responsibility to pass our faith on to the next generation. And increasingly in the West, in this country, in this particular culture that we live in, it's going to take great patience and great courage to do this. In our Old Testament reading, we saw that as the baton of faith was being passed from Moses to Joshua, the Lord appears to Joshua and reminds him to be strong and courageous. And we have a New Testament equivalent in 2 Timothy where Paul, at seemingly at the end of his days, is passing on the baton of faith to his beloved protege, Timothy. And as we see in Joshua 1, Paul's watchwords, too, are strength and faith. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy. What I want to do this morning is look at how Paul provides examples of encouragement and strength to Timothy. First, let me just give you a bit of context before we move into our reading for this morning from chapter 2. We see in chapter 1 that Paul is encouraging Timothy to live into his spiritual gifting, his rich spiritual heritage. He says in verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Why this reminder? Well, if we read between the lines, it seems that Timothy was suffering from timidity, from reluctance perhaps. His flame was flickering. And Paul reminds him in verse 7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And because of this empowerment, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel and reminds him to guard it with his life. Verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And as we move into chapter 2, our passage for this morning, we see that a key component of guarding the good deposit is not simply to hold on to it, but to pass it on to others. We don't want to hold on to it like the servant in Christ's parable who takes this talent and buries it in the backyard. We need to pass it on. We need to entrust the faith to others. Verse 2 of chapter 2, And what you've heard from me, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others. This passing of the flame is why we are here today. Think about that for a second. Because God's people have been faithful in the past, we are here today instead of sleeping in. We are links in a chain 
that goes all the way back to the apostles themselves. But if 2,000 years of church history teaches anything, this task is not easy, is it? Discipleship is hard work and often entails disappointment, pain, suffering. And we've seen this in our journey through Acts this year, especially in the life of Paul. It's difficult. So, at the beginning of chapter 2 and verses 3 through 6, Paul provides three precise pointed metaphors of what discipline and hard work look like. Three illustrations of what it means to keep the faith. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And on the surface, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on here. But notice verse 7. Here Paul tells Timothy to think over what he has said. And then he says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. My original intention for the sermon was to talk about all three metaphors. But I took Paul at his word. I thought and prayed carefully over these particular metaphors. And I feel that in the time we have this morning, I only can do justice to one. And so this morning I'll be focusing on the first one the soldier. And if Aubrey ever lets me up here again, I might have a part two with the athlete and farmer. Verses three through four of chapter two, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Let me say just a little bit first about the kind of soldier that Paul has in mind here, the Roman soldier also known as the legionary. Historians have long marveled over the strength and durability of the Roman army. With their training, with their discipline, their flexibility in battle, they were unequaled in the ancient world. And arguably, relative to its time, the Roman army represents the most powerful military force in human history. They were ruthless and brutal, but effective. And in the first century A.D., the legionary, of course, would have been attached to a legion. And these legions consisted of different groups. The smallest group was called a contubernium. That'll be on the membership exam next week, (laughs) Aubrey said. The contubernium. This was a group of about eight soldiers, perhaps with a servant or two. They were tight-knit. They lived together. They ate together. They fought together. They died together. This was the core of the legion. And then ten of these small squads would form what was called a sentry. About 80 soldiers with auxiliary servants, and their leader, of course, was a centurion, the most important officers in a Roman legion. Six sentries would form what was called a cohort, about 500 men. And then ten cohorts would form a legion. With additional cavalry and archers, this would be around 5,000 men. And in 25 AD, Tacitus tells us that the strength of the Roman army was about 25 legions. Powerful military. Let's say a bit about the battle tactics. Though these varied over time and place, in the first century, the general approach to battle was a multiple-line attack. And the idea was with these multiple lines to break down the enemy, to grind them down. 
In larger battles, it typically had three lines. If the first line fell, those who were still standing would fall behind the second line, and the second line would engage the enemy. And if, in some cases, the second line fell, the third line, known as the triari, would engage the enemy. The key to this approach to battle was to hold the line, to push forward, and at all costs, not to let the enemy breach the formation. But, as historians have noticed, battle was not necessarily the norm for a Roman soldier. Though, like military personnel today, they always had to be on the alert. It was quite possible for a Roman soldier to live out his usually 25 years of service without ever having faced an enemy in battle. So, what did the soldiers do in peacetime? Well, they had their hands full. One of the things they did, as we saw last week in Acts with Paul, is they were more or less a police force. They would keep the peace. They did border control. They even built walls. There's still one in northern England, Scotland, called Hadrian's Wall that you can visit. They constructed bridges. They built canals. And very importantly, they also constructed and maintained roads. Uh, These roads were very important, not just for the movement of troops, but for commerce. And these roads are what enabled Paul and the gospel to spread so quickly, like wildfire across the empire. They even sometimes would be involved in mining. So being a Roman soldier was not all about the glory of battle. More often than not, it was tedious work. Well, let's turn back to our passage here in 2 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This first phrase, share in suffering, can also be translated as endure hardship. We've already seen that being a soldier in the Roman army was not easy. It required discipline, self-sacrifice, dedication, and more often than not, tedium. And the point that Paul is making here is this. If your primary identity is in Christ, and if you aim to fulfill his mandate to make disciples, you're going to experience on some level hardship, difficulty, and suffering. And though the language of spiritual warfare has been abused, overused, even misused, Make no mistake, the New Testament is crystal clear on this point. In Christ, we are at war with the forces of darkness. The stakes are high and the danger great. The battle is intense. And if the line is not held, the consequences can be disastrous. Paul laments this very problem here in 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 15 You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Here he mentions that Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This desertion, this failure to hold the line, puts the gospel cause in danger. And I can bet that many of us here this morning have been deeply affected by spiritual desertion, by the unrepented failures of 
Perhaps someone who was a spiritual mentor to us. Last Tuesday was All Saints Day. And we might well remember those who have gone before, those who have shaped our faith in positive ways. But we might also recall with fear and trembling those who have fallen, who have fallen away from the faith. In Roman warfare, it was all about working as a unit. Soldiers had to act in concert. We are not Lone Ranger Christians. We are told to share in suffering. We are to hold the line together, and we must shore each other up. And given the danger of this line being breached, it's no wonder that we see Paul time and time again reiterating the importance of standing firm, of being steadfast. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, I'll give a few examples. Be steadfast, immovable. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Ephesians 6.13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So, Paul's first point with this metaphor of the soldier is that we must share in suffering. With fellow soldiers, we must hold the line. The second point we see in the first half of verse 4, chapter 2. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. In the Roman army, the requirements were restrictive. You were not allowed to be married or to marry if you were a Roman soldier, and you were not allowed to have business on the side. And of course, people found ways around these regulations, but the ideal was still there that a soldier be single-minded and have undistracted service. But what does this mean for Timothy and for us today? Like the Roman soldier, the Christian is not to be entangled by civilian pursuits. This term, civilian pursuits, can also be translated civilian affairs, affairs of everyday life, or the things of this life. And the point here seems to be that though we often find ourselves occupied by the things of life, we must be aware of the danger of becoming preoccupied with the things of this life. John Stott puts it this way, what is forbidden the good soldier of Jesus Christ is not all secular activities, but rather entanglements, which though they may be perfectly innocent in themselves, may hinder him from fighting Christ's battles. There's a lot we can say about these seemingly innocent or harmless things in life. There's a lot we could talk about. But in this passage with the image of a soldier, Paul is making a point about focus, about intensity, about single-mindedness. And this leads us to the issue of distraction. Distraction. Over 30 years ago, Neil Postman published a provocative study entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Anybody familiar with this book? It made a bit of a splash when it came out. One of the things that Postman argues in this book is that technology, specifically television, has dumbed down and simplified public discourse about complex issues. And he has some insightful discussion about 
decreasing attention spans, that we have more and more difficulty focusing on something. And there are a number of targets that he looks at, but one of them is rather interesting, the beloved children's show Sesame Street with Big Bird, Oscar the Grouch, Grover, all those guys. And he argues that shows like Sesame Street, because they use short, entertaining clips, keep kids glued to the screen, and this contributes to short attention spans. It makes education difficult. The kids are always wanting to be entertained. So indeed, C is for cookie. And that might be good enough for Cookie Monster, but it's not for Neil Postman. Well, that was 1985, back when the Rubik's Cube was still popular. Synthesizer rock, which hasn't aged well. What's happened in the intervening 30 years? We've gotten better, right? We turned the corner, thanks to people like Postman. No, unfortunately, with new media, with personal computers, with the internet, with smartphones, we are worse off, we are worse off than ever when it comes to being distracted. Maggie Jackson, in her book, Distracted, The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age. How do you like that title? says that though we live in an age of glittering promise, the way we live with and in this technology is eroding our capacity for deep, sustained attention. And she talks about three aspects of attention. She talks about awareness of one's surroundings. And we have a new problem in our culture. It's called distracted driving. She talks about focus on tasks with the impossible emphasis on multitasking, which she said is not possible, effectively. And she talks about higher-order attention skills, like planning. We live in a culture that has turned distraction and amusement into a multi-billion dollar business. And our culture, like a petulant child, cries out, I'm bored, and then demands, entertain me. And whether we like it or not, this particular spirit affects the way that we practice our Christian faith, and we must prayerfully consider how to counter this wrong spirit. So as Christians in 2016 America, we are doubly challenged. We're told that we are not to be entangled by or preoccupied by the affairs of everyday life, the things of the world, but we also live in a world which perhaps more than ever distracts us from the most important things. And unlike ages past, there's no break from it. If you allow it, this distraction breaks in on us 24-7. So together we have to strategize about how to follow Christ in such a time as this. The Roman army had a small squads, its conturbia. And we too, perhaps in small-knit groups, we have small groups here at Incarnation, need to have conversation about how to deal with this particular cultural problem of distraction. So here in 2 Timothy, we see that a good soldier does not become preoccupied with the things of this life, is aware of the dangers of distraction, 
We see that a good soldier hangs in there, enduring hardship and holding the line. And finally, and briefly, we see number three, second half of verse four in chapter two, that, well, we see what it's all about. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This term, the one who enlisted him, has also been translated as commanding officer. There's not really a whole lot to unpack here. Roman soldiers swore allegiance annually to their centurions and to the emperor. Our enlister and commander is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who one day will dash all imperial pretenders to pieces with his iron scepter. And our ultimate aim, of course, is to please him. So in conclusion, be of good courage. Be strong and courageous. And then these evil days, when the nights get longer and the darkness seems to be deepening, do not be disheartened. Hang in there as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardship. Hold the line. Shore up others who seem to be faltering. Keep your focus on what matters most, remembering that often the greatest enemy of the best things in life are the good things in life. And finally, aim to please our Lord in everything you do because, as we heard in our reading this morning, verses 11 through 13, Jesus Christ, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, He will deny us if we are faithless. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself.